Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me. I am honored to be your host, Kunji Ikeda, and in this series, The Stories from the Stage, we will be taking a look at Japanese Canadian dancers and actors and how they relate to the world. In this episode, I am thrilled to be joined by one of the most prolific actors in Canada. Definitely. Japanese Canadian actors, but with over 193 IMDb credits and a Governor General's award winning playwright, I am so thrilled to welcome and chat with Hiro Kanagawa. And wherever you are around the world, I'll invite you now to the Nikkei Theater within the mind. If you're ready, I'll invite you to join me in taking your seats as we anticipate. This idea of performance, of community, of sharing stories. Let's take a deep breath. Lights up on Hiro Kanagawa. My name is Hiro Kanagawa, and these are my stories from the stage. I'd like to invite you onto the set of my stage adaptation of. Mark Sakamoto's forgiveness. But imagine, if you will, let's walk across a farmer's field in our 1940s Sunday best, picking through cow pies and mud. And we arrive at a shack, which actually is nothing more than a chicken coop. And I think if we enter into this. Crude wooden structure,、uh, and imagine ourselves there. That's an excellent place to have this conversation.、Um, I think, as a writer, all of my work has been about the intersection between the dominant culture of whiteness and、uh, those of us who are on the periphery. And、uh, as such, Japanese and Japanese Canadians have a very unique position. And、uh, obviously, the internment during World War II was, was a seminal event in our identity and our history.、Uh, so, I'd like to, for all of us to go back to that moment and、uh, imagine ourselves there as we have this conversation. That's lovely. You, you can hear the, the kind of the door swing open, and I'll kind of saunter in. And、uh, thank you so much for setting the scene here, Hero. As you speak about taking us back to the, to the history,、uh, can we dive a little bit into your history and how did you and when did you know that you had something that you wanted to say in an artistic way? Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, even though I have taken us collectively back to the internment, I, my family doesn't have any personal history with it.、Mm. We, we、uh, came to Canada in the 1960s. Uh, my father was chasing research grants.、Uh, and he, was he was actually a pioneer in、uh, in vitro fertilization of、uh, frozen cow embryos. And,、uh, and so we came to Canada in 1967. I was born in Japan. I was born in Hokkaido.、Oh, okay. Yeah, Hokkaido,、uh, which is the Northern Island.、Uh, I was born in Sapporo. There's, you know, Hokkaido is. Really analogous to Canada, insofar as、um, unlike the rest of Japan, it's 
it's basically all farm farmland hmm. and fishing villages and um there's uh one large city sapporo which is about the size of say a vancouver and then you know the rest of hokkaido as i say is mountains and farms and fishing villages and um a lot of people also don't know that Hokkaido is only about as old as Canada. You know, we think of Japan as an ancient civilization, uh, but until the late 19th century, Hokkaido was inhabited by the indigenous Ainu mainly. And uh, for the rest of Japan, it was just, um, it was a land of exile. And it was only after the Meiji Restoration, when the feudal system was abolished and samurai were abolished, uh, there was suddenly this large class of trained warriors who were unemployed and had nothing to do. And so the government sent them to Hokkaido uh, to basically to take it over and cultivate it. And so the history of Hokkaido is very much like the history of Alberta or or BC in that uh, in the late 19th century, the Japanese colonized it, essentially assimilated or wiped out the indigenous Ainu, who by the way, also had a, a culture very similar to the Pacific Northwest uh, First Nations groups. And so that's part of my history of Hokkaido is part of my history just as much as living in Canada, which is a nation that obviously colonized uh, this continent and, and stole it away from the indigenous people here, you know? So in, there, there are a lot of ways in which I think my Japanese identity uh, intersects with my Japanese Canadian identity, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Was that uh, history alive when you were growing up? Was it was your family aware? And did they recognize and, and did you recognize at that young age that that was uh, politically alive? I, I don't think politically, no. I mean, obviously, these, you know, the significance of these things are, these are things that obviously I didn't really come to understand until I went to college and, and gained some kind of uh, political consciousness about the world. Um, but if you go to Hokkaido, I mean, it's the way they treat their history is very much the way history is treated in, in, you know, the, in the American West or the Canadian West or in BC, you know, there's statues of the, of the pioneers and, you know, there's heritage buildings and so on celebrating, you know, these brave, hardy pioneers who came and settled the land. And uh, it's, it's really not that different from how that history is treated here. You may have recently heard that it was just last year that the Ainu were recognized by the Japanese government as an official minority group. For them, it has been over 100 years of, of subjugation and discrimination uh, at the hands of the Japanese government. Wow. Quite the hit, like quite the, <laughs> it feels like the seed of, of your thoughts have kind of been stewed in that idea on both sides of the ocean there. Well, you know, as I gained some kind of political consciousness as an adult, uh, I, I guess I came to recognize the extent to which, you know, my position in the world is complicit and compromise, complicit with, uh, you know, a structure of, of injustice, 
and even though we as minorities, as Japanese Canadians, as minorities have ourselves faced discrimination, obviously, you know, the theft of Japanese American and Japanese Canadian property during World War II, and then the forced, you know, what we politely call internment, that's one of the, the blackest marks on either government uh, in, modern, in modern history. Um, and we certainly, you know, we're victims of that. But at the same time, I guess because I come directly from Japan, I'm also conscious of uh, the role of Japan itself in global imperialism. Mm-hmm. And I'm conscious of, here in North America, I'm very conscious of our proximity to the center of whiteness. Mm-hmm. We have, I think now especially, we have a, that puts us in a position of where we can be of great use. Instead of simply accepting our privilege and entitlement, There's there are things about our history and our position which... I think if we speak out, uh, we can be of great use in in uh, healing and in moving the culture forward. Uh, you've spoken so, about this in some of your your writing and your articles that that the Japanese Canadian Japanese American trajectory in your lifetime you've seen it go from this enemy alien subhuman class to being accepted into this club of whiteness. Can you speak a bit about that progression through your eyes? Well, I think uh, during World War II and, you know, in the, in the years immediately after World War II, in North America, there was probably not a more despised group of people. And, and you entered into that as a... Well, as I, a... Was, I was born in 1963, which is just 18 years mm. after the end of World War II, you know, and we came to... Uh, in 67, that's 20, 22 years after the end of World War II that we came to Canada. And, uh, you know, I certainly remember in school being teased about, you know, my flat face and my squinty eyes and uh, my disgusting food and uh, the, the fact that I couldn't pronounce L's and R's properly. And so that was definitely a part of my early childhood. Hmm. And, uh, you know, if you look at the media at the time and, um, and so on and so forth, I mean, and just consider how brutal World War II was in the Pacific. You think of the terrible atrocities committed by the Japanese, the terrible treatment of, of POWs by the Japanese. Um, and, you know, it's, there's, it's no, it's no wonder that uh, there were a lot of hard feelings, you know, to put it lightly. For sure. Um, but as you say, within my lifetime, I think if you look at American and Canadian society today, really, we are one of the most accepted minorities. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously, the Japanese were for decades have been called a model minority. Uh, there's also the, you know, the very interesting sociological fact that Japanese Americans and Canadians married, marry outside of their in-group uh, much more than any other 
ethnicity or cultural group, um, it's it's over seventy percent, right? I think uh, it, I, uh, Jeff Cheba Stearns had a, a, a movie out that I think quoted it at over ninety five percent for Japanese really? Canadians. Really, it's that high now? I mean, especially during a certain period uh, right. following World War II, it was absolutely that high. And looking at my my family, my father, aunt, and uncle all all married white people. How could you? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yes, and- I mean. Uh, of all of the uh, people of Japanese ancestry that I know, you know, <laughs> literally, literally dozens and dozens of people of Japanese ancestry that I know, and uh, pretty much all of them are uh, are with partners who are not of Japanese ancestry, which is a uh, fascinating because in in Japan itself, it's a very homogeneous culture, but. Why, why is it that in North America, it's the exact opposite? Mm. And probably there's some deep psychological scarring from the World War II experience, uh, you know, the internment, um, that is probably, it, you know, my... I can only conjecture that there probably is a deep psychological scarring, which has uh, led the Japanese community in, in both our countries to, to, to some extent, uh, reject that insularity for which we were punished. I absolutely, yeah, that resonates. Um, doing a lot of the work and the research that I've done, my family has shared almost exactly that, that the scarring isn't as deep as we might think. It's often pretty hidden. There's a, there's a sense of done and and the the seeds were planted that the Japanese Canadians were the enemies that their culture should be broken up as much as possible we should restrict how many can get together and we should really encourage them not to practice whether it's the language whether it's the uh, culture the uh, even the food uh, and so I feel like a big part of the uh, conflict in my own family has come from you know, these brothers and sisters see each other and are reminded of that times and are reminded of those you know, really, really um, volatile ideas that seeing that face and, and feeling Japanese, there's shame there. And, and so it's, it's really interesting to reflect now because my generation is, is, as you say, has, has kind of grown up now being in the club of whiteness. So we don't really see in the same way why there's that shame, why there's that turning away from the culture, from one another. And so it's been really artistically, I mean, so rich to, to think about some of these ideas. And, and you yourself have, in your art, have, have really cultivated through some of, these, some of these conflicts that live within us. How have these ideas fueled some of your artistic work? Even well, here's the thing. For quite a while in my early career as a writer, you know, we're going to have to separate my career as, as an actor and my career as a writer. Most people actually know me more as an actor just because of the film and television that I've done in, you know, fairly high profile American productions. A lot of people are surprised to learn that I'm also I'm also a playwright. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I got I got to interject and say that that as a theater artist, it's really disheartening to hear a government. 
Well, award-winning playwright <laughs> that they're not recognized as a playwright. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, even when I taught at, uh, I taught for five, I taught playwriting for five years at Capilano University. And the incoming students, if you, if you ask them, how many of you have been to a play in the last three months or the last six months, or, you know, it's, it's not a lot. It's not, it's not a common thing anymore. Mm -hmm. um, part of it is the expense and so on, but part of it is it's hard for live, live theater to compete, right? With, um, but anyways, what I was getting around to saying is that early in my career as a writer, I was very conscious of not wanting to be what Joy Kogawa in a, in a in an interview in the 80s once said, um, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but the quote is, Lord, I'm so tired of being a professional ethnic. And that is something that I really, for myself, as I was beginning my career, I resented the idea that because of my ethnicity, that was what I had to write about or talk about. You know, in those days, I felt it was one of the least interesting things about me. Hmm, interesting. Uh, and maybe I had, you know, as you were saying earlier, I had internal, I had a lot of internalized uh, shame myself or uh, whatever. Um, but I did not want to write about Japanese identity. I did not want to write about the Japanese Canadian experience. I thought there was so much more to the world that I wanted to talk about. I mean, in Indian Arm, the play that I wrote, which won the Governor General Award, it's, it has nothing to do with the Japanese experience or the Japanese Canadian experience. So it's actually really only in recent years that I have really explicitly started to explore that. Uh, it's only in recent years that I've made peace with the fact that uh, this is something that I should own and speak about myself. And I guess it's for the reasons that we kind of started this conversation with uh, it's, it's really taken me, you know, a long time to realize that the Japanese Canadian and Japanese American experience and, uh, Japan's place in the world, talking about these things is useful, especially given where we are now as a world in terms of race relations mm. and, uh, you know, the huge disparity of wealth in the world and, and really all of the problems in the world, we as Japanese Canadians and Americans and, and Japan itself as a nation, uh, we can play a very large role in, in helping to helping others to understand and, uh, and move forward. And so that's where I am now, but it, it has taken me a long time to get there. Hmm. But in retrospect, looking back, all of my plays, even when I wasn't explicitly writing about the Japanese experience, I do realize that all of my plays are about the relationship of uh, marginalized groups to the center of whiteness. I mean, that has always been subtextually the grand theme of my work. Mm. I'm so interested in this, in the journey you're mentioning and, and how you've taken steps forward in your own uh, awareness and the awareness of our community, society. And, and I really want to ask you, because I've, I've heard you write or speak about early roles, mostly in film and television, but even in theater, that 
you know, as you speak about this resistance of leaning into your Japanese-ness or feeling that that's the least interesting, and then how did that, how did that come into connection with all these roles that are in a way limiting, in a way asking you to, to show that side of yourself that you felt was not as interesting? Was there, was there a conflict in, in that personal aesthetic of, I have more interesting things to do and to be? And then this job that asks you to be exactly that. Yeah, and that's a, that is a dilemma for all actors, uh, regardless of uh, their, you know, ethnic, ethnicity or, or cultural background, I think. Um, because film and television, and, and to a lesser extent, theater types people, obviously, you know, you're either, you know, you could be the greatest actor in the world, but if you're 5'4 and, and weigh 200 pounds, you're not going to be typed physically as a leading man, you know, and that's just, uh, that's an unfortunate reality of, um, of those industries. And I, as an Asian male, have certainly been typed as white collar. Uh, as I grow older, um, I'm typed obviously as an authority figure, ultimately subservient to, <laughs> to a white man, you know, to a white lead. But my bread and butter as an actor have, have been authority figures, you know, detectives, FBI agents, doctors, lawyers, uh, teachers. Principal Kwan was my first prin uh... school principal. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so on and so forth. And, and uh, you're right. They're not, they're not how I see myself. If, I, if you gave me the opportunity to choose roles for myself, those aren't the roles that I would necessarily choose, right? But there is a cultural inscription of the Asian male in popular culture. Hmm. But, you know, if you, you know, having spoken to Latinx actors or African-American actors, um, once again, and this is one, this is one of the uh, problems I have, I've had in my life with speaking out about, uh, injustice or or discrimination in the film and tv industries which is that there's a lot of discrimination that goes on which is much worse hmm. than what i've faced you know i've made a living a good living over 30 years and there aren't a lot of actors who can say that mm -hmm. you know i've raised a family primarily on an actor's income hmm. um you know if you go to imdb you know i have a I'm approaching 200 credits you know? and, uh, and, and I, I do want to uh, pick your brain a bit more about uh, what you're about to get into. But before we do, if I may ask a, a bit of a selfish question to you, uh, which is on the personal side, as you just spoke about the roles you are cast in, isn't exactly how you see yourself. Mm -hmm. And if I can ask you a bit more about that, because you, as, as you say, as this immensely popular, well-thought, well-spoken, award-winning playwright, like in, in my own selfish point of view, I have to cast you as a hero. I've got to cast you as like this leading man. And as if, I mean, I'm only 5'4 myself, so that kind of hurt when you, when you mentioned that. But for me, in my, in my 
mental well-being to continue in this industry, I have to be able to cast you, Hiro Kanagawa, as a lead, as a hero. How do you cast yourself? You, as in, ter in terms of like, what would I, what would I play, and if I had a dream role, what would I play, kind of thing. I mean, even more so. How, like, you you don't walk out the door seeing yourself as a as a principal or like as a, a no, authority exactly. figure who's yeah. ultimately answers to a white figure. Mm -hmm. No, but I mean, but obviously, uh, there's something there's something about me which makes me, you know, believable as that thing. Um, and, uh, for whatever, I mean, I've spent my entire life in the arts. Uh, I spent my, you know, a large portion of my early adulthood, uh, being very arty farty. You know, I was in, you know, I have an MFA, you know, I have a master of fine arts. Yeah, you're, you're a sculptor, right? And, and, yeah. I was a sculptor, sculptor and I, you play guitar and you yeah, write exactly. and you, like everything. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not how I'm perceived by the industry. Uh, if I, I bet if I went out, if I auditioned for the role of like an arty, like some artist living in a loft, you know, some hip woke artist living in a loft, you know, making like junk sculpture and which is, <laughs> which is what I was, which is exactly what I was for a large portion of my life, I probably wouldn't get that role. Mm. I mean, people just don't buy that I'm that it's much easier for them to buy that uh, I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer or uh, I'm a billionaire, you know, or, you know, I've, you know, I'm, I've literally played more billionaires <laughs> than I have <laughs> artists, but, and if you're going to be typecast, there's a lot worse things that could happen to you. Right. I mean, just talk to any African-American actor or indigenous actor or Latinx actor. There's a lot worse uh, that could happen to you than the way that I've been typed in my career, especially because I've also had the opportunity to play bad guys. That's fun in, in and of itself because it's pure fantasy. I mean, obviously there's stereotypes and, uh, and some of that veers into the um, possibly harm, harmful uh, if it were not for the fact that we that our position now is so close to the center of whiteness and I have turned things down that were blatantly, you know, ridiculous. But in other instances, uh, I always find I always look at it as an opportunity for me to bring humanity and dimension to the role and uh, to depict an Asian body, an Asian male body in a way that is perhaps not one that is part of the the standard cultural inscription. Mm. So, you know, trying trying to expand the idea of what an Asian male can be, not only in media, but in our society. I mean, wow. <laughs> You've taken my goofy kind of fun question and, and really made a beautiful point about it. And now I want to ask, as I see a bunch of my indigenous peers who are immensely talented and and taking the you know they as taking the roles as these indigenous thugs i mean you had a similar experience when you first started in uh, um, in film roles that it was a lot more racially charged than it is now what would you say to people like that 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 do have the opportunity to enter into some of those 
potentially stereotypical roles. I think everyone has to make their own individual choices, right? Um, I think just in the past few months with the BLM movement and, uh, you know, there has been a large cultural, I mean, COVID has, has been a huge opportunity for a cultural reset because everything came to a full stop. And it provided us with the opportunity to say, well, now that we're all shut down anyways, let's really think about what we're going to do if we're going to start up again. Mm. We can't just go back to normal because normal, there was nothing normal about it. It was a system, right? Mm -hmm. It was a social construct, which uh, privileged one group of people. And and, caused harm to others. Exactly. And to, to say that that's normal, to even be able to say that, well, that was normal, right, is obviously completely false. And uh, this, so it's been a tremendous opportunity. So hopefully, you know, I think for, for younger artists coming up, that that's a part of the conversation now. Um, and so hopefully they don't have to deal with the kinds of things that, that people of my generation had to deal with, which is, you know, the, the token diversity uh, you know, let's throw so-and-so in, you know, as spear carrier number three, you know, just so we can have brown faces on the stage, uh, that kind of thing. Right. Or, um, or even worth fun at it is, is to make it yeah. a joke, to make it a turn, right. to make it a, uh, to perpetuate that mm-hmm. narrative of the goofy, smaller mm-hmm. role. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, just in the past, just this past summer, the conversation is happening. And uh, it seems to me that we can't move forward. No one can move forward without having these conversations with any production. And so I think that's a very heartening thing, very encouraging thing. I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's definitely some silver linings to be to be had. But Hero, it's it's hard. These conversations are heavy and difficult and challenging. And were there, I mean, not to shed too much light on it, but were there times in your career that that you thought it might be too heavy for you? Did you have exit ramps that you were looking at and times that you thought, uh, enough of this, I'm going to go be the, uh, be the granola visual artist again? Uh, not the granola visual artist. Uh, I mean, the reason I'm not a visual artist, I fled, I fled the visual arts, uh, just because of, you know, I mean, who can afford to buy a sculpture, you know? And the reason I, I came into, uh, I mean, I'd always been performing anyway, but you know, the reason I, I made the switch to theater and to film and television is because at the time, anyway, they, they, seemed more democratic Mm. anyone could afford to go see a movie anyone could you know Mm -hmm. uh in those days it felt like anyone could afford to go to the theater but um yeah i would never go i don't think i would ever go back to being a visual artist um was there anything that made you want to get out of acting well i i enjoy it you know Mm. i enjoy it certainly if it had been a limiting thing for me, 
I probably wouldn't be doing it anymore. And, and, and to be honest, uh, there were a fairly large group of men who started out around the same time as me. And, uh, you know, every year, a few of them were gone. Uh, you know, 10 years later, there were only, you know, if I started out with, let's say, 20 guys who, you know, we all went out for the same auditions, uh, you know, 10 years later, there were only 10, you know, and then a few years later, there were only five. And, uh, you know, at my age now, it's, I'm pretty much the only one left standing. <laughs> um, but it's, it's partly because uh, the opportunities weren't there. And, uh, you know, for, for a lot of the guys, it was, it was limiting. They weren't getting the opportunities for different kinds of roles and so on, which I fortunately was able to forge for myself different niches here and there. And, uh, I want to get back, I want to get back to something else that you mentioned about, um, <laughs> again, the five foot four actor not being the lead. Is that changing? Is that ever going to change? Are we ready for stories of uh, leading people who aren't five foot eight to five to six foot with a strong jaw and and the the five o'clock shadow? Are we are we ready for uh, for new leads and new voices? I hope so. You know, not just for myself, but it's it just enriches all of us. All of us. It enriches all of society to see all of these different stories and uh life experiences and you know in representation it does matter it when you don't have that it creates this harmful illusion i don't see how that's beneficial for anyone to live that way and to to perceive the world around you and the culture that you live in as being that way it just isn't i think and that's another reason why as i grow older i've made efforts to expand my work uh, in terms of, you know, what I talk about, uh, the roles that I take on, and outside of art, the things that I, you know, that I write about in terms of essays or social media posts or what have you. I think it's important to speak out about injustice and to uh, speak out about inherent biases and uh, discrimination. I'm shocked because I'm shocked when I speak out about things which seem pretty obvious to me and then I realize they're, they're not obvious to everyone. And so that has really reinforced for me the importance of me continuing what I'm, what I'm doing now. I mean, the, the awareness, everything you've spoken about, the awareness, the, the history, being able to, to in a way, see the ideas inherent in the oppressors, you know, the imperial colonial ideas, and then just to feel, to really feel the resonant flip side of being that, that enemy alien, that to be othered in that way. And I keep hearing stories and, and anecdotes that to be that other in the room meant that you couldn't make a mistake. You had to be, in a way, you had to be perfect and, and to, to be able to both set the room at ease and be accepted as one of us while at the same time there was a clear understanding that you you were othered you you were that's really um where i think we have a responsibility 
as Japanese Canadians uh, and Japanese Americans uh, and, and Japan in the world itself, because um, I think there is a tendency in the white power structure, the racial hierarchy, the status quo as we know it, to point to Japanese Canadians and Americans and go, well, see, see what they've been able to, how can you say there's racial discrimination? Look at the Japanese Canadians and look at the Japanese Americans, look how successful, look at Japan. How could there possibly be racial discrimination in the world if Japanese Canadians and Japanese Americans are so successful, so accepted, that's obviously proof that racial discrimination, systemic racial discrimination does not exist. That's the myth that the status quo uses us to prove. And we have a responsibility to uh, refute that because yes, we are privileged. We occupy a position very close to the white center, but it is entirely contingent on whether the powers that be wish us to remain in that position. As soon as they decide that they don't, they will steal our property away and ship us to camps. Or, you know, in the 1980s, when Japan became the number, briefly, the number one economy in the world, there were all kinds of Japanese, anti-Japanese sentiments and demonstrations. And, you know, Vincent Chin, was beaten beaten to death by auto workers in Detroit because they mistook him for for someone who was Japanese and you see now with covid and as you see there you know there's anti asian hate crime all over the place now so our our position we are not in any way proof that racial discrimination doesn't exist we're proof that there is a system of racial discrimination there is a racial hierarchy in the world. And, uh, you know, the fact that, that our position is fairly close to the center doesn't mean that the system doesn't exist. We're proof that the system exists. You know, it's, it's literally the same system that was law in apartheid South Africa, whites at the top, Asians next, East Asians next, with most notably the Japanese being designated as honorary white. You know, we were legally honorary whites in apartheid South Africa. Uh, and then you had various, you know, various other peoples mm. with the blacks at the bottom, the blacks and, you know, who were, and then the groups who were called native. And, and essentially that's the same system that we're still living under. It's mm. not the law, but Sorry, Hero, we're having a little disconnect here. We froze there for a while. Yeah. But yeah, I'm back. <laughs> okay, great, great. Um, I love what we're getting in. I so love what we're getting into. Um, I, I love to share the idea and the story that, I mean, I feel so, I feel so privileged, uh, not only to, to, as you say, to recognize that I'm in this honorary club of whiteness, but also in the, I've had the artistic space to be able to think about this, the social ramifications of who I am in space time. Um, and, and I like to, to share the idea that uh, my given name is Mark and my middle name is Kunji. And it feels like for the first 20 some odd years of my life, I was trying to be Mark. I was trying to fit into this system. I was trying to be who I was expected to be. 
and and in the past five ten years i've really tried to live up to be kunji to to have my own voice to recognize my place in the system so my question for you is what would you say to a younger japanese canadian who's trying to be more socially minded what would you say to mark as as he's trying to make his way through this world what's a low-hanging fruit to to recognize a lot of this social injustice what's one thing to get started i think that a lot of what we've been talking about in this conversation really is the key thing to for someone of, of japanese a young person of japanese canadian ancestry to to really uh, take to heart, which is that our story has value. Our experience, our place in the world, these aren't things that uh, A, we should take for granted and just carry on as if we were Mark, you know, as if we were uh, a white person, because we're not white, we're honorary white. And that means, once again, as I, to reiterate, that's a contingent place. It can be taken away. Hmm. So let's recognize that that's inherently an unfair system, an unjust system. So how can we use our position? How can we enlighten others about our situation to reveal the larger system of injustice that's in place? And I think we have Japanese Americans and Canadians for too long kept their heads down. I mean, there's the old, you know, the older generations have that saying, the nail that sticks out gets beaten down. And obviously we have historical reason in our community to live by that. That was a very literal uh, analogy for quite a long time. Absolutely. It was, right? And, you, and I'm, I'm sure every person of Japanese ancestry on this continent has heard it at one time or another from an elder, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This moment, this moment in history now is a moment where everyone has to speak out to reveal the injustice of the system that's in place. And even though we have to some extent benefited more than others, right? Because we are accepted as honorary white, it's not our place now to, you know, to simply be complacent and stand on the sidelines and go, well, this isn't our conversation. This is a conversation between whites and blacks, or, oh, this is a conversation between whites and indigenous. We're not part of this conversation. That's not the uh, place we should be. And we certainly should not be aligning ourselves with the oppressors. Because if we align ourselves with them, that's who we are, which, you know, in, in many ways, that is the position of Japan as a nation. Uh, it has a very poor record of human rights. Have you ever thought about politics, getting into politics? <laughs> you know, two years ago, my wife ran for city council. She did. Here, yeah. And uh, I was her campaign manager. <laughs> it was the hardest I've ever worked in my life. <laughs> Uh, it was an eye-opening experience. We lost, she actually would have won, except uh, she got completely annihilated in one outlier neighborhood. We lost out by less than 200 votes, ultimately. Wow. In, in an election where like, you know, 13,000 votes were cast. 
but it it all worked out because um she came to realize that she was able to do more in the community not being on city council mm. so <laughs> it all worked out i mean just to reiterate that like i i got to i got to say thank you i mean to see to see you not only on stage on the film uh and to to hear you to hear that you you've clearly done so much soul searching thought reflection on your place our place in this community uh it's is i mean i i just want to say thank you no it's been my pleasure to have this conversation it's you know um i'm always you know as an artist i think we're always we're always working like, even when we're not and so it's great to have conversations like this because it clarifies for myself what I think I think uh, <laughs> and uh, what I think my views are. It forces me to articulate uh, and uh, make concrete, you know, vague notions, which I otherwise, you know, might never get around to, um, to confronting. Mm -hmm. Perhaps I was, I was unfair to you, but I had, I had some pretty high expectations for this conversation. That have, that have all been met and exceeded. Um, thanks so much for, for thinking this through with me. No, 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 it's uh, my pleasure entirely. Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage is hosted by me, Kunji Ikeda. More information about my own artistic work can be found at cloudsway.ca. For more information on my guest, Hiro Kanagawa, you can check out hirokanagawa.com. Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me is co-produced and presented by the Nikkei National Museum and Cultural Center. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, Stories from the Stage.